Wow, such wonderful worship this morning. We worship in singing, of course. We worship in prayer. We worship in reading scripture. And we also uh, hear the word preached. That's part of our worship. It's really the pinnacle because it's God speaking through a man to us. It's God's word, his perfect word being proclaimed. And lately we've been looking at some doctrinal issues, some doctrinal problems that sometimes we have that we need clarification. Also, particularly with today's doctrine, it's encouraging us. It's assuring us. It's comforting us. We first looked at justification a few weeks ago and union with Christ last week. And I've heard good feedback from both of those that it's been helpful to you, that it's encouraged you. I think today's message also will do the same, Lord willing. And today's topic is assurance of salvation. We're going to be all over scripture. And what we want to do is see what the Bible has to teach us about assurance, about our assurance, my assurance, your assurance. The question we want to answer is, have you ever wondered if you're truly saved? Some of us certainly have. Most of us have at some point, depending on how we live our life and how our growth in godliness has been. Do you have full assurance then of your own salvation in Christ? Not just some assurance, But do you have full assurance? Do you wake up every day and go throughout the day knowing that you know, that you know, that you know you are saved? That you are going to be with Christ forever. You are going to heaven when you die. You're going to spend eternity in a glorified body with Him. Assurance is that we have been justified. We know that we've been justified. We know that we're being sanctified. We know that we are going to be with Christ forever forever. We're talking about being in a state of grace, not a state of judgment, not a state of wrath. Assurance is is knowing that you have passed from death to life, that you were a sinner, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But when you know you've been saved, you know something has changed. You're now in the category of the living, not the dead in their sins, that you have inherited eternal life. Assurance is the confidence of a believer has, that they are truly saved. In other words, all believers should want to know that they're truly saved. You should want assurance. This isn't something that you should not think much about. This isn't something that you should just go through life never questioning and wondering and examining yourself. Uh, True believers don't always have full assurance. Sometimes true believers doubt. Sometimes true believers wonder if Christ has saved them, if they're part of the elect, if they are going to be with Christ forever. It's not that everybody will have assurance, but we should all strive to. We should all work towards that. Second Peter 2.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. All the more diligent. That means strive. Work hard at knowing, at making certain about His calling and choosing you. It's commanded that we work towards a full assurance in Christ. I don't mean work it off. I don't mean a work for salvation. What I mean is working in your own self-examination, looking at the scriptures, and making sure you have full assurance. 1 John 5.13, John says, These things I have written to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The book of 1 John was written so that people would know, so that we could read it and know that we are saved, so we could have full assurance. It's really the the cream of the faith, the Puritans used to say. You have a milk jug laid out, 
and you let it sit out a while and the cream rises to the top. Well, assurance is like that cream at the top. It's the richest. It's the sweetest. It's the thing that we should want. Many methods have been suggested, though, some wrong, of course, to figure out if we're saved. How do you know? That's always the question. How do you know? What methods do you use? What tools? What questions? And many times people tell you just to look back at your life at some event, at some point in your life when you were saved. And so they might say, look at when you said a sinner's prayer. Look at when you walked an aisle. Look at when you went to church camp and made that commitment. Look at when you were baptized. They want to tell you to look back to some moment. Look back to when you had some mystical experience. Some people say speaking in tongues is evidence of being saved. Of course, we would not teach any of these things here. They're not biblical. Some of us do have a year, a date, a month, an hour that we know God changed our hearts. Others of us, we don't know. We don't know a time. There's no command in the Bible. Nowhere will you find that you must pinpoint an exact time that God regenerated you. In fact, that can lead to some problems, can't it? Because sometimes people tend to look there instead of their own life now. All that we're going to be talking about today is going to be, what is your life like right now? What are your beliefs right now? Not looking back. Sometimes looking back can help us. Sometimes it can confuse us. And sometimes people have a false assurance by looking back to some moment where somebody else told them that's when they were saved. Other people have made the mistake of saying you can't know. The Roman Catholic Church teaches it's actually heretical to say you have assurance of the faith. Only certain special privileged saints can know that they're going to heaven when they die. Everyone else cannot know. Even Arminians and Charismatics, they say there's no use. You, you can know today that you're saved, but tomorrow you might lose your salvation. Tomorrow you might do something and lose your salvation. So you really can't know. There's no use in thinking about it, working to find out if you're saved. Well, we teach here, as the Bible teaches, that it's a privilege. It's a privilege for believers to rejoice in their assurance of salvation. It makes you all the more effective for God, for Christ, when you're assured of your salvation. It brings you peace. It brings you the kind of peace and joy that we've been singing about here this morning. So we have to ask ourselves then, what are the grounds for this assurance? What do we look for to see if we're truly saved? And I don't mean the grounds by which you're justified. Two weeks ago, we talked about justification. That's only found in Christ alone. And it's through our faith that God puts us into Christ and puts Christ into us. We're not talking about your grounds for justification, for being saved. We're talking about how do you know that you truly are saved? Looking back, reflecting on your own life now. So we're looking at the grounds for assurance. Now, when we talk about the grounds of assurance, I'm going to give you three today. Three major grounds of assurance. And these are not something I've just come up with. These are historic in the Christian faith. You can find them in the Westminster Confession. You can find them in the Reformers, the Puritans, the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. But most importantly, we're going to find these in Scripture. We're going to find these in Scripture. All that those confessions were doing, all that preachers today are doing, should be to go to Scripture and find the truth there and give it to you. So that's what we're looking for. Three grounds to give us assurance. How can we test ourselves to find out if we are 
Number one, the first one, the promises of God revealed in Scripture. The promises of God revealed in Scripture. If you want to have full assurance of your faith in Christ, ask yourself what you believe about the promises of God revealed in Scripture. Do you believe them? This is the primary ground of assurance. Everything else we're going to talk about after this is, first of all, supported by, number one, the promises of God revealed in Scripture. Does your trust in Christ exist? Do you have a real faith in Christ? Do you have a real faith in all that Scripture says about Christ? You have to ask yourself those questions. The Bible says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How do I know if I'm saved? I don't look back to a time. I ask myself right now, do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just believe in His existence. Did I put my whole life in His hands? My eternal salvation is His. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are promises. Those are promises in the Bible. Do you affirm the scripture's record of the person and work of Christ? Do you understand and and believe that he was truly God and truly man? Do you believe in the fact that he is God manifest in the flesh? Do you believe that God saves sinners solely through the merits of Jesus Christ? We could just go on and on with the promises of God in Scripture. Do you believe in the promise of the Holy Spirit? That believers have the Holy Spirit. That Christ and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to all believers. Do you believe in the promise of the church? That Jew and Gentile would be brought together in the church. And that we should gather to have a church worship and assembly. That we should worship Christ our risen Lord. Ask yourself these things. Do I believe in all these promises in the Bible? Do I just believe the Bible as true and real for me? It is true. It is real, whether you agree with it or not. But a believer accepts those things. A believer has faith in those promises. The promise of the resurrection, the promise of Christ's return, the promise of God's judgment upon the earth, the promise of eternal life, the promise of justification, sanctification, adoption, all those in Christ will have these blessings. We could just go on and on. There's so much more. Do you believe all that God has promised believers in the Bible? You believe that? You know, people often lack assurance because they, they've wrongly been taught they should look to themselves first in their works. We're going to talk about works. We're going to talk about good fruit. But if you start there, you're going to start off on the wrong footing. You're going to trip up. You're going to start to look to yourself all the time. And then what happens when you stumble? What happens when you sin? So there's this up and down in many people's life of assurance. One day they feel saved. The next day they don't feel so much. The next day they feel like they're living a holy life. First of all, do you believe in the promises of God? How do I know I'm saved? I believe what God says in the Bible. That's your first answer. I I believe in the promises of God that they're true, and they're true for me. They're true for me. I know they're true for me. That's evidence that God has changed your heart. Because you accept that. You believe that. Because God has, has told me in Christ Jesus. He has promised it so that I know it must be true. I put my whole life in His hands. I know those promises are right and true. Now, as as my assurance grows, my trust in God's promises grow. The more I understand the Bible, the more I grow in my acceptance of all that's there. 
even though I don't know, none of us know all the scriptures, the more we understand, the more we grow, the more our assurance should grow with it. Because we're just seeing promise after promise after promise. And that should give us more assurance. In these promises of scripture, which we're going to look at a few, I rest my salvation. If you're a believer, you rest in those things. First and foremost. And those are inseparable from Christ. All those promises, I listed just a few. You can't separate them from Christ. Just like justification and sanctification can't be separated from Christ. Because you're united with Christ, you get all of those blessings. Remember, salvation is about a person. The person, Jesus Christ. And so when we think about assurance, we must start with Christ. We must end with Christ. We must always consider Christ. We can't celebrate having assurance and not having assurance in the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. You have to believe by faith, not by sight. We have not seen all that God will do for us. You've seen some of the things in your life. You haven't seen all the things that God will do for you. So you have faith. You have faith that when we get to glory, we will see those things. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's go there. We're going to be in there for a bit. Hebrews chapter 6 has a lot to say about the hope, about the future of what God is going to give us and the hope we have in Christ. And so if you want to know if you're a Christian, you have to ask yourself, do I believe in this hope that's being talked about in Hebrews 6, starting in verse 11? And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. He's talking about a full assurance. You see that in your Bible. That's what we want today. Full assurance. If you're a Christian, you want full assurance. And he says, pursue. He's just talking in general about holiness. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. It's not in yourself. It's in hope. Hope is a confident expectation of things to come. It's not like we use the term, I, I hope someday I am a millionaire. I hope someday I get the car of my dreams. No, no, no. Hope in the Bible is something that we're looking forward to that will certainly happen. It will happen because God has promised it will happen. Jump down to verse 17. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an, with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, just to summarize what he's saying there, the two things are God's promise and his oath. God has made a promise. He's sworn it by an oath. So the writer is bringing in all of this, and he says, in which it is impossible for God to lie. So God will keep his promise. God will keep his oath. He cannot lie. We, we who have taken refuge, that means you've come under the shelter of God. That means you're a believer would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There's a promise that God has made. There's a hope. There's a hope of eternal life, a hope of the resurrection, a hope of having all things new, no more sin, no more evil in the world. And he's saying, because of God's promises, we can have assurance. We can look and hope and have that assurance. Hope for the fulfillment of of all that God has promised in our salvation. Look at verse 19. This hope, 
this confident expectation we have as an anchor of the soul. How do you know each day that you're saved? The anchor of the soul, this hope. The hope that God will fulfill his promises in Christ. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Jesus has made the way. He's done everything that's needed. So we look to those promises when we trust in Christ. How do you know you're saved? You look at the promises like this in the Bible. And the Bible tells us we can have assurance because of those promises. Every look you take at yourself, it's said that you should look ten times as much at Christ. Am I living a holy life? That's a good question. But remember, ten times as much you should be looking at Christ as you think about assurance. We just sang about it in that last song. Yet not I, but Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. You can't claim those on your own. We're we're singing there about all I have is mine, all the blessings and promises in Scripture. But how do I have them? Because Christ is in me. Because I'm in Christ. And it's strange, it's divine. This is really the cure for when people say, you know, today I don't feel like I'm a Christian. I just don't feel like I'm a Christian today. Well, see, our assurance of faith starts with the facts of Scripture. The Bible tells us the truth. It tells us facts. And then we have to have faith in those things. We have to have faith in what the Bible says. We have to have faith in God. Having faith in what Scripture says is having faith in God. Then out of that flows our feelings. Out of that flows the emotions that we have. Our emotions, in other words, ought to line up with the truth. So the facts of Scripture, the plain truth of Scripture, our faith in that, and then from it are our feelings. Feelings aren't a good guide. How you feel today or tomorrow is not a good guide to assurance of the faith. You could add pizza last night that made you sick. You could have a cold. You could have all kinds of things going on in your life. That's not a guide to your assurance of salvation. Your feelings need to line up with the facts, and the more that they do, the more that they line up with the truth of Scripture, the more you will have assurance. Because even your emotions are lining up with your faith in God. Now that's the main point. That's where we start. Christ. The promises in Christ. Promises that God gives us. But we all know people who claim that, don't we? And they don't live at all like a Christian. We all know people who say, yes, I believe everything in the Bible. I've never had a problem with Scripture And then they go on living their life like Christ never existed. I was preaching a funeral for a family member earlier this week. And I preached on the hope of the resurrection. We had believers, we had unbelievers in the room. And I'm preaching on the hope of the resurrection. And after the funeral, a guy says, you know, I've never heard you preach, but I thought that was really good. I thought that was really good. And I knew who this guy was. And I know he's not living like a Christian should live. And I said, you have to obey what the scriptures say. You have to live it out. He had no problem accepting the truth of what I said. Who doesn't want to think about the hope of the resurrection, especially at a funeral? Everybody does, just about. But we all know people whose lives don't line up with that. 
and it gives them a false assurance. That's where the danger is here. If we just stopped right here, that's a false assurance. Oh yeah, I have no problem with that. So God, in his wisdom, gives us another ground of assurance. Number two, evidences of God's grace working in you. Evidences, things that you can look at. The scripture is true. You don't look at it to wonder if it's true. After we've accepted the promises there, though, we we turn to ourselves and say, okay, how am I living? What evidences do I see in my life that match up with what a believer should be like, how a believer should live? To have assurance, a believer should see evidence of those graces to which the promises of Scripture are made. God's promised something. We're looking forward to it. We're having a confident hope. Now there should be some fruit. There should be a life that is in accord with that. If you trust in the promises of God, then you'll see those promises working out in your life. God doesn't say, yes, there's something to look forward to. Now go and live however you want. Do whatever you want. No, God says, you have something better to look forward to than this life. You have something great and wonderful. Live according to that. You can see in a person's life if the faith they claim has an impact on their soul, on their heart. You can see that. You can see it in your own life. As Jesus said, he was the vine, that all the branches that are in him will produce fruit. These are evidences. Good fruit are evidences of salvation. God's grace in us, that God is truly working in us. His spirit is in us. Christ is in us. Is my faith real? That's what we're talking about here. As the book of James teaches, faith without any good fruit is dead. It's not real. It's not a real faith. You claim it, but there's no good fruit. It's a dead faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's actually saved us for good works for him, for his glory which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's not an option. It's not even something we really have to give a lot of thought to. We can resist the Spirit. We can resist bearing good fruit. But God's already laid them all out. He's already planned them beforehand. He's preordained your good fruit. So they will be evident. There will be something there. So I want to give you a few major categories. I've listed five. Five major categories of good works, good fruit. Because good fruit covers a lot in Scripture. The New Testament has a lot to say about it. The Old Testament has a lot to say about it. We're talking about good fruit here. So the first one, the first one you need to ask yourself is a desire for Christ and His Word. Do I have a desire for Christ and His Word? I'm not asking if you believe the Bible's true. I'm not saying do you believe the promises in Scripture, do you have faith in Christ? But do you have a desire for Him and His Word? Do, do you love Him? The Christ that you once hated, do you love Him now? Do you desire to know more of Him? You know, Paul prays for that in Ephesians and Colossians. He says, I pray that you would know more of Christ, that, that Christ would dwell in your heart more richly, that the Spirit would work in you to fill you up with more of Christ. Do you know Him? better? Do you want to know him better? Do you you hunger and thirst for something of Christ? Do you have an affection for him? My wife 
is wonderful. I love her and I want to be with her and I want to get to know her more and more over our 22 years of marriage. I want to, I want to get to know my wife. How much more for Christ? You know, if you just said, I got married and now we're living apart. We never see each other. I don't care to know anything about my spouse. Then you're really not married. I mean, you, you might have a legal certificate to say that. A Christian who says, I love Christ, but I don't desire to be with him. I don't desire to spend communion with him, uh, prayer with him, scripture reading with him. That's not a Christian. But if you have an affection for Christ, if you have a passionate love for him, that's a good fruit. That's evidence of God's grace working in you. A desire to, to live for him. It's critical. So many people skip this and, and talk about the other things we're going to list here other evidences, but we need to start with a love for Christ because out of that is where all the works come from. Our love for Christ, Christ in us, working out in our life. This is exactly what Jesus says, John 14. Go to John 14, 21, Gospel of John, and he's talking here about love for him. Do you have a love for Christ? He who loves me will be loved by my Father. If you're loved by the Father, you're saved. He who loves me, the person who loves Christ, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. So the first evidence is, do I have a love for Christ? If I do, then I can have assurance. Remember Paul closed out the letter to the Ephesians like this. Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Grace and peace with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Those are believers, Paul says. That's who I'm talking to. That's who I'm writing the letter to. I love Christ with a love that's incorruptible. It can't be changed. It doesn't go from day to day. I love him because he is my Savior. He's my Lord. So out of that will then flow other things. Number two, the second evidence category that you're looking at is do I have obedience to the word and the pursuit of holiness? These two go together. A very broad category. A lot of scripture verses talk about this category. Do I obey the word and thereby grow in holiness? Because I love the Lord, I want to obey his word out of our love for Christ, our desire to know him more, our desire to know his word more, I want to obey it. Stay in John and go to John 14, 15. John chapter 14, verse 15. So we've talked about having a love for Christ. And if you have a love for Christ and the Father loves you, you know you're saved. But also your obedience to the word. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. This isn't a burden this isn't something heavy. This isn't something impossible for the Christian. Now, it is impossible to keep them perfectly, but that's not what he says. He just says you will keep them. Your general life will be one of following the Scriptures, of obeying the Scriptures. If you love me. There's an if there. Not everybody truly loves him. If you do, you'll keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me. That's important because how do we know we're saved? If we love Christ, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We'll make our home with him. 
will dwell with him, in other words. Am I obedient to scripture? And as a result, growing in my sanctification and my holiness. James 1.22. This is a key passage because it, it just cuts to the point like James likes to do. James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Hearers delude themselves. They hear the Bible, they say, it's good. Everything's great. Agree with every bit of it. And then they go off and don't do a single thing that the scriptures say. And James says, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Of course, you've got to hear it first. You've got to read it, hear it preached, hear it taught. But then go and do it. Jesus and the gospel of Luke. Go back to the gospel of Luke from John, if you're still there. In Luke 8, 21. The same saying is found, or type of saying is found in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark. But Luke records it in such a way, and maybe Jesus said it different ways over time. You remember they came looking for Jesus. His family did, his mother, his brothers. And some people came in and were surprised that he wasn't going out to see his family. Why aren't you going out to see your family, Jesus? And he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. You can be closer to Jesus than his own mother and brothers if you hear the word of God and do it. He's being very clear there. Believers want to follow scripture. Believers are following scripture. Believers are keeping his word. Go to Matthew chapter 7. And this is one of the most frightening verses in the Bible. So if you're here today with false assurance, this should shake you up. If you have true assurance, biblical assurance, then this is a warning and not something to fear regarding God's judgment. Matthew 7, and we're in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Who are those who do God's will? Those who obey the scripture. What is God's will? It's prescribed to us in the Bible. He doesn't make it questionable. He doesn't make it mysterious. It's right here in the Bible. Yes, some verses are harder than others, but as we study, as we grow, we understand the will of the Lord for us. And it's our growth in holiness. Jesus goes on, though. He says, Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These were people who thought they were Christians. They could even put forth some evidence, almost miraculous evidence. Maybe it was truly some kind of demonic miracle. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He doesn't zero in on their faith. Faith is important. Faith is key. We looked at that in the main point number one. These people claim to have faith. They claim to do good works even. But they actually practiced lawlessness. They actually went about their life however they wanted and lived according to the world, according to their lusts, according to Satan's desires. And he says, depart from me. They truly thought they were going to get into heaven. And he says, no, your, your life showed that you weren't saved. God doesn't need to see our works to to prove that we're saved. He can see right into our heart. But our works do say something about us. And he tells them, just look at your own life. 
Just, just look at your lawlessness. There's so many commands and encouragements in the New Testament about this point. Obedience and growth and holiness are not just words that we throw around as Christians. There's something that we show forth in a life of a believer. This helps us to know that we're saved. Obedience, fruitfulness, holiness. Go to 1 John. I said earlier that it is the book to help us. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. John's going to help us. How do we know if we're saved? Well, he has a lot to say about this category of obedience and growth and holiness. By this, we know that we have come to know him. In other words, we know we're saved if we keep his commandments. How can I know if I'm a true Christian? Am I living according to the word of God? He's not saying we earn our salvation by keeping his commandments. He's saying as we look back on our own life, as we reflect on ourselves right now, am I keeping his commandments? Go to verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practice righteousness is born of him. Am I born again? Have I been born of God? Do you practice righteousness? Is the general pattern of your life one that conforms with the word of God? That's what righteousness means. You, you conform to the will of God. Verse 7 of chapter 3. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. There's a lot of deception on this point right here. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Someone's life tells you something about them. We live in a world today where, where people say, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You can believe 180 degrees the opposite and it doesn't matter. It's not what the Bible says. It says your beliefs are shown in your life. Your life lines up with your beliefs. And we know this to be true. Any other area that we look at in life, we recognize that. You know, if someone is stealing things, we don't say that's an honest person. They are just an honest person. Even though they steal and take whatever they want, that's an honest person. That's illogical to say. And John's just saying, look, it's illogical to say that someone knows God and is with him and is saved if they practice sin, if they live a life of sin. Practice in John, First John, is, is a lifestyle. Think of a doctor's practice. Every day he's in there practicing medicine, practicing sin. Every day you're, you're living sin. You're loving it. Righteousness is the key. Your, your life is conformed to the will of God. John MacArthur says that genuine assurance comes from seeing the Holy Spirit's transforming work in your life. If the Spirit is transforming you, you're going to look different. You're going to grow because you're obeying the Word of God. Good works, growth, holiness. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit's in you. Galatians 5, and 23. Read it later. You're going to bear good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's your fruit, but it's coming from the Spirit. Ultimate source. Let's go look at the Second Peter verse I mentioned earlier. Second Peter 1.4. And we're going to see how Peter makes this argument. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that's what we already talked about, the promises of God. So that by them, you may become... So because of these promises of God, we can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we're different than the world. Believers look different. They act different. They think different. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, 
And he starts laying out what it means to live a godly life. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that means you're growing in them. You don't start out knowing and doing everything that you're called to do. You have to grow in these as a Christian. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we live a godly life, as we obey Scripture, we're growing and growing and growing and becoming more useful and more useful. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Sometimes you can stumble. Sometimes you can backslide. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Sometimes people say, I don't know if I'm elect. How do I know if I'm the elect of God? Here's what Peter says. He answers it right here. How are you living? He's assuming that you trust in the promises of God. He's already mentioned that back in verses 4 and 5. But now he's saying, how are you living? Make certain. How do you make certain? By living out a godly life. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He's not talking about justification. Of course, justification is there. It's it's assumed. It's behind the scenes. But he's focusing now on sanctification. And if you're living a godly life, then you, of course, prove, you show that you have been justified. That God has declared you righteous. Because now you're living that righteous life. And he says, the kingdom is open to you. So we spent a lot of time on that one because the scriptures spend a lot of time on that one. Number three, hatred for and sorrow over sin. Now I know these overlap. If you're obeying the Bible, then you're going to have this. But I think it's important enough to bring out separately. You have a hatred for and sorrow over sin. People who are saved hate the sin that they once loved. They hate it when they sin. They have a sorrow over it. You might think, well, hate's a strong word. Should we hate anything as a Christian? Aren't we all about nice and love and peace? Well, Paul said in Romans 12, 9, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. This word abhor in Greek means to hate strongly, to despise it. Hate what is evil, including the remaining sin that's still in you. There's still remaining sin if you're a believer. God's still digging it out, scraping it out of your old heart there. He's still working on it. There's a little bit there and a little bit there to work on. And you hate that that, that's still there. You hate that sin. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil. If you fear God, if you're loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you hate evil in you and in the world. You should have a sorrow. You should have repentance over your sin. That gives you assurance. Go to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 9. This is not a hard passage to understand. Uh, Sometimes people forget about this verse in the Bible. They skip talking about repentance. And they ought not to because repentance is key to the Christian life. You have to have it. It is part of your Christian life. He says, he writes to them, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. He's not rejoicing just that they're sad according to the world standards. 
but they're sad to the point that they repented. They turned away from their sin. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. This is God's will, that you would turn from your sin so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. You don't look back on your sin and then regret your repentance later. No, you look to your sin and it makes you sad that you've done this against the holy God, the God who saves you, the God who loves you. And it leads to repentance, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Just being sad about sin, I'm sad about the consequences. That's the sorrow of the world. The world is sorrowful when they do something wrong because it affected them. Famous people, when they get caught doing things, what do they always say? I'm sorry that this caused so much of a problem for everybody else out there. They never say, I sin and I repent of that and it was wrong and I'm stepping down. Read all of Psalm 51 later. You can get a sense of what it looks like for David. But he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he goes on to ask God to purify him, to wash him. You ought to hate your sin. You've got a different relationship with your sin. Paul Washer says, do you have a new relationship with sin? Because if you don't have a new relationship with sin, then you don't have a new relationship with God. Things change when you're saved. You might not pinpoint the day and the time, but you know now your life is different. Sin is different. You hate it. Number four, love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. We're back to 1 John for this one. Do you have a love for God's people? This is a good evidence of God working in your life. You want to be around Christians. 1 John 3.14. You want to be around Christians. You love to serve them, to help them, to pray with them, to worship with them. You want to be in church. You love the brethren. This is a sign of assurance. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we've been born again, in other words. We know that we're saved because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And he goes on to open this up. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So the opposite of love is hate. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and doesn't go on to help his brother isn't loving the brethren. You've got to be around people enough to know what they need, know their desires, their needs. What do they really desire to grow in the Lord? Pray for that. Do they desire more Bible? Do they desire more time and fellowship with other believers? They need those things. Pray for that. Love for their brethren. All of us know people who claim Christ and they're so excited in the beginning. They're so excited. They do all of these things. And then time goes on and they, they don't have any love for other Christians. They don't want to be at church. They don't want to join a church. They have no love for other Christians. And the Bible says you must have love for the brethren. Number five, a clear conscience before God. 2 Corinthians 1.12 which speaks of rejoicing in the testimony of good conscience. You can read that one later. But 2 Corinthians 13.5 also speaks of this. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail the test. See, he's telling us, examine your life. Examine your, let your conscience examine your life. Your conscience is a tool that God has given you. It tells you right from wrong. And Paul says, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you? Is your conscience clear before God? Could you stand before God and say, God, yes, I'm a sinner, but I've confessed my sin to you. I've asked you for forgiveness. I know you've granted that in Christ. And I'm not living a lifestyle of sin. I'm not hiding some great sin. Your conscience is clear. Paul talks a lot about his conscience being clear before God because he's examined himself. We've got to be like the psalmist, David, and Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Search me, O God. God already knows your heart anyway, but sometimes we try to hide from God. We think we can hide from Him. We think if we hide from the people at church that we're hiding from God. If we hide from the pastor, we're hiding from God. That's not a clear conscience. That's a guilty conscience. And that's not good fruit. So these are the five categories that talk about evidence of God's grace in our life. And if we just focus on that, if we just focus on number two up there, evidences of God's grace, and we don't remember the promises of God in Christ, then it's all about us, isn't it? All about our works. But if we just focus on the promises of God revealed in Scripture and don't examine the evidence in our life, then we claim faith but don't live it out. So they go together. They go together. It's not based on our works, but we will see good fruit in our life. You should see it. And, and really, these, these five that we listed here, if you can claim any of those in your life, then you have them all. You might say, well, I have a hard time. I have a real hard time obeying the Bible. But I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to know him more. And I want to learn from his word. Then you can claim all of those. You have them. You have them. Maybe you need work in those areas. Maybe you're not strong in all five. But I bet you other people could look at your life and tell you, yeah, you show that. You show that. The Puritans called these five a string of pearls. And if you pull on one pearl, the whole string is going to go with it. They're connected. Lastly, and, and briefly, really, because it's so clear to us in the Bible, the Holy Spirit's testimony with our spirit. The Holy Spirit of God helps us with our assurance. The Spirit is there to comfort us, to help us. You see, if you try to look at the evidences of fruit in your life without the Holy Spirit, then the conclusion whether you're saved or not rests solely upon you. Oh God, I think I'm saved because look at all that I've done. But the Spirit testifies with our spirit. The Spirit helps us examine ourselves rightly according to the Bible. The Spirit helps us in knowing if we're saved or not. If you are saved then he's confirming that. And then if you aren't, he's not in you and he's actually convicting you of your sin. But we're talking about believers here, so go to Romans 8 for the key passage here, Romans 8, 13. And this is the key passage in the Bible that tells us that the Spirit is in a believer testifying. How does that work? Well, this is all we get here in Scripture, Romans 8, 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. 
So every believer has the Spirit, Paul says. And a believer who has the Spirit is working on their sin. They're killing their sin through the power of the Spirit. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are people who are saved. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Testifies, witnesses, confirms that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit helps us. It's not just up to us to figure this out. The Spirit is helping us. If you're doubting your salvation, if you're doubting your assurance, you ought to ask God to work through his Spirit to assure you, to give you full assurance. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you're saved, you do have the Spirit. The Spirit will be testifying. Sometimes we can fight against that. Sometimes we can quench the Spirit's work in our life. But we ought not to because the Spirit helps us. The Spirit testifies to us. None of these three main points stand alone. You need to look at all of them in your life. If you just say, well, God the Holy Spirit told me, and you have none of the others, that's uh, Pentecostalism. That's charismatic beliefs. That God somehow told you you're saved. But the Bible gives us more than that. The Bible says, yes, the Spirit testifies, not verbally, but through working in your heart, the Bible says. But also we have fruit, and also we trust in the promises of God. All three work together to give us assurance. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. I hope that you have learned today what the Bible says about assurance. I hope that you've found some comfort, maybe, if you're doubting, if you're uncertain. I hope that you can give an honest look at your own life. If you can't, I'm sure your closest family or friends would be glad to pray with you and help you through that. Maybe today you have full assurance already, and this confirms how you have it, how, how you've already been thinking on this. Maybe you have false assurance today, though. And maybe you think, yeah, I'm a Christian because I grew up in the church. I, I, I went to church all my life. I'm a member. All these other things that people say. When we're talking about salvation, you have to put all of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. Then you can look back and see these things. If you haven't done that, this is a nice Bible lesson, but you need to remember that it's Christ who saves. And you need to put your faith in him. For the believer, we ought to rest assured that we're saved. If you're truly born again, you need to have assurance. You need to have assurance. You need to be thankful to God. It causes your prayer life every day to change because God keeps you in his hands and he gives you assurance of his salvation. Lord, we thank you so much for what your Bible teaches us. We would be lost on this doctrine. We would make it subjective. We would make it about our feelings. We would make it about our circumstances. But yet your word, it gives us clarity and we know, Lord, that we can be assured of our faith. We can be assured of our salvation. Help us all here to know that we know that we know we are saved. And if there are some who aren't, Lord, save them and let them know that they're saved. 
We pray for that. Do a mighty work here. In the name of Christ, amen.